Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our substitute teaching leaders, Caitlin Meyer, will be discussing Genesis chapters 47 and 48. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, and join Caitlin as she shares truths from God's Word. All right. Hello. Welcome back to our study in Genesis. Um, My name is Caitlin. I'm one of the substitute teaching leaders for our young adults St. Louis class. And I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump right into Genesis 47 and 48. Father in heaven, um, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you that you lead us by grace through the study of your word. Thank you that you unfold your truth for us and help our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. And so I pray that over this time, and I pray that you would help our finite minds to grasp the wonders of what it means to be truly blessed. Um, Thank you that you are shaping us by these realities. Help us to know them more. And we pray these things in your name. So I have been thinking quite a bit about the concept of blessed. Obviously, we throw that word around a lot, either on social media, hashtags, um, in our churches, in our conversations. We use that word a lot. And so I think it's a worthy question. Are you blessed? And how do you decide how you would answer that question? And I think as we've been studying Genesis for these eight months or so, That's a concept that we have seen consistently across the book. This truth that the God of the Bible is one who blesses. And I've realized this week, it will take me and all of us a lifetime and maybe an eternity to start to unpack the beautiful layers that are crammed into that reality. But I do think there's one foundational truth from the book of Genesis that we can put on the table for this week. And it's regarding what does it mean to be blessed. And I think we could see that what defines the scope of blessing in your life is not what you have. It's not your status or your possessions or your influence. But what defines your state of blessing is your relationship to your creator. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the one we've been tracing throughout this entire book. And what have we seen of this God as he's shown himself to us in in Genesis? And I think in small part, we can see that he is a God who pursues a people to bless the line of Abraham. He's a covenant-making God. He's a God who promises a magnitude of blessing that only the creator of this world could even fulfill. But he not only promises things for his people, He promises his presence with them. In contrast with the Egyptians that we'll see this week, true blessedness is not merely enjoying his common grace in this world from afar, but instead true blessedness is represented in the family of Israel being bound to him in a covenant relationship 
where he is their God, their shepherd, their redeemer. And while he is shaping his people to have their eyes fixed on these sweeping promises that he's made for them for generations to come, he's also showing himself that he's not just a promise maker, he is a promise keeper. He's fulfilling pieces of his promised blessedness to those we've already seen in Genesis. And in doing so, he's encouraging them and us to continue to walk by faith, to continue in full confidence that he will bring about what he has promised. So I think a question to ponder as we head into these two chapters is, in a world that is consumed with grasping at circumstantial evidence of blessing, what does it look like to live transformed and secured by the blessedness of the Lord? the living God. So grab your Bibles. We are in Genesis chapter 47 and 48 this week. And here we're going to see how God is working through Joseph and then through Jacob as vessels of his blessings, first to the nations and then particularly to his covenant people. We're going to trace this theme through two divisions this week. The first being Genesis 47 verses 13 through 27 where Joseph administers blessings of God's common grace to Egypt. And then we're going to look at Genesis 47, verses 28 through 48, 22, where Jacob delivers blessings of God's covenant promise to Joseph and his sons. So, as we enter chapter 47, verse 13, we're going to see a summary of Joseph's leadership of all Egypt throughout this seven-year crisis. Why do you think this account has been preserved in such detail? I think in it we see God is fulfilling, at least on a micro level, one of his covenant promises that he's made to Abraham for his descendants, that through them all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Due to Joseph's position of leadership, chapter 41 told us that all of the world came to Egypt in order to buy grain from Joseph. And now we're seeing how he went about administering all of this. Did you also find it difficult to see Joseph as the administer of blessing when his leadership results in amassing such extreme power to Pharaoh and then reducing the people to servitude? I realize the Bible isn't giving us a comment on Joseph's economic policies with either approval or with criticism. But as we think about how God elevated Joseph to this position, how Joseph understands his own mission and purpose in this role, I think that helps us to more closely follow the main point of this narrative. Joseph is administering God's life-preserving blessing in a time of great scarcity. So let's think back for just a minute. Remember how Joseph was established in such a position of power in the first place. Back in Genesis 41, he acknowledged plainly before Pharaoh that God had used his dreams to show Pharaoh what he is about to do. And in that faithful moment, Joseph was not only a vessel for God's gracious warnings about the hardships that are coming, he is a vessel of wise counsel, advising Pharaoh with a plan for navigating the famine. Now, Pharaoh immediately notes that God is with Joseph that God is granting him such wisdom, and on this basis, he sets Joseph over all the land. Then later we see 
that Joseph's mission and purpose remains fixed on God's and God's purposes for elevating him to this position for this time of crisis. He told his brothers, it was God who sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive and to keep alive many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over the land. So while we might cringe to consider the political and social risks and ramifications of the measures that are taken in Egypt, let's follow the narrator's focus to see how Joseph is living out the role God positioned him in for God's purpose of bringing about the blessing of preserved life through such severe hardship. In verse 13, we see that very stark description of the crisis. There is no food in all the land. The famine is very severe, both in Egypt and Canaan. They're wasting away. Truly, as Joseph had forewarned when he interpreted the dreams, the preceding years of abundance have been forgotten. And it is only by God's grace that the Egyptians have anywhere to turn to avoid starvation. I think this scene of sudden languishing is really a sobering reality check for all of us, especially for us here in our country where years of plenty, at least relative to the world, are the expectation. God has warned his people a lot in his word of the delusions we can fall into in times of material plenty. We are prone to forget God, to forget him as the creator and sustainer of our very lives as the provider of our every daily bread. So here, as we enter the Egyptian situation where wealth and prosperity are being stripped away, we also can learn and see that it is God's hand alone that is the source of our every sustaining blessing. So we watch in verses 14 through 24, there's a repeated cycle as the Egyptians take increasingly desperate measures to avoid the starvation as these years of famine just persist. We see once their money is gone, Joseph starts giving them food in exchange for their livestock. This is a huge wave of society altering loss. All of their resources and now their livestock are depleted and yet the famine still persists. So they come back to Joseph again saying, why should we die before your eyes? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. So this results in Joseph's decree in verse 23, Behold, I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. He gives them seed to sow the land. He tells them to make a harvest, give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be for their own, for seed for the field and for their households and their little ones. So we've seen it. The Egyptians have come face to face with the humbling truth that defines all of us, all mankind. We are not self-sufficient. Our survival completely depends on God's steadfast provision and providence. I think it makes all of our human natures really squirm to see such desperate dependence on display. Driven to enlist their lands and their very lives into servitude of another. But however we might recoil at that idea, the narrator provides for us not a picture of embittered dismay, but of humble, even grateful recognition of their rescue. 
Verse 25 captures their response. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. With their material possessions withheld in this season, they are driven empty-handed to the source of hope and provision that God sent before them through Joseph in this crisis. With recognition that they could do nothing to provide for themselves and their young ones apart from Joseph's administration, they then honor him. They submit their very lives to the ruler that Joseph serves. And I think this reality brings us to a principle we can take from this section. God can use scarcity to open our eyes to see our truest need. And that's his blessing. In the years of plenty, these thriving Egyptian landowners probably never would have imagined that they could be humbled to the point of gratefully submitting to the bondage of an authority who could preserve their lives and provide means for continued livelihood. God uses scarcity and loss to confirm what his word has plainly shown us. We are quick to seek blessing and security in things like wealth and relationships and status and pursuit of pleasures. But like those seven years of plenty, these things in and of themselves belong to the world. They're passing away with the world. And as painful, extremely painful as it is when they are suddenly lost, it does wake us up. It shows us where our priorities and focus have been consumed with that which is passing away. And in that space, it might feel like we are completely stripped and completely empty-handed. But when we come to God in that position, it's by His grace He can use that loss to leave us then open-handed, open-handed to His truest blessing, open-handed to then cling to Him, to Him as our provider and our sustainer, open-handed to live for His priority and to seek the fruit that actually endures to eternal life. And while we certainly need the Spirit's help in seasons of loss like that to direct our hearts towards true blessing, how much more does the Egyptians' plight grant a reflection of our actual most dire need? Think about the parallel here. The Egyptians were desperate to preserve the blessing of their physical life. And they willingly submitted all they had, even their very lives, to the one authority who could provide them rescue from this famine. How much more should our dependence on our Savior for true life, eternal life, then drive us to submission of all we have and all that we are into His service? Have you recognized you can't save yourself? In our own natural state, we're not only at risk of perishing spiritually, we're already dead in our trespasses and sins. The God who could justly leave us in our plight instead rescues us by the sacrifice of his perfect son in our place. Our restoration to true life in Christ, it was bought with an infinitely valuable price the precious blood of Christ himself poured out. We who look to him as our savior 
Now also look to him, submit to him as Lord. We cry out alongside the Egyptians, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to our king. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the cost. He calls us to lay down our entire life into his hands, to yield our whole self, our plans, our desires, our possessions at his feet to be used for his purposes, whatever the cost, to daily deny ourselves and take up our own crosses and follow after him for his glory, not for our own. And while we feel that it's a fearful thing for these Egyptians to be in bondage to a human master who's prone to sin, and exploitation of power. Yet we do not need to fear submitting all that we have and are to the purposes and plans of the King of Kings. For he's perfect in all his ways, holy and righteous, merciful and gracious, patient, abounding in love and faithfulness to those who have come under the righteousness and lordship of Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, Remember, your life has been redeemed. You've been bought back at an infinite price. Now, how is the Holy Spirit transforming you as you place your very life in His hands? How have you tasted the freedom of slave from slavery to sin, from the love of this world? How have the blessings of new life in Christ caused you to hunger and thirst more and more for righteousness, for more and more of Him? We're now going to make a fairly abrupt shift into our second division, which is Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, through all of chapter 48. So our, our attention is now shifting from God's common grace that's administered to the Egyptians through Joseph's leadership, and now focusing on God's promised blessing being poured out to his covenant people, the family of Israel. In verse 27, kind of a pivot point between these two sections, we already see a contrast that's being established between Egypt and Israel. While Egypt's account emphasizes reduction, the summary of the Israelites is brief, but quite surprising. It says the Israelites acquired property there, and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. This report feels as unlikely as hearing about a baby boom in the midst of the Great Depression. But even in that really brief description, we seek God's fulfillment of his blessing over his people, the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. And God's glory is magnified as he brings about his purposeful blessing on his people in the most unlikely of circumstances. Now, as we look at verse 28, we find Jacob, and he's close to the end of his life. He who has described his days as few and difficult to Pharaoh has now been granted 17 years of life in Egypt. And he's been reunited under the care of his beloved son, Joseph. So when his time drew near to die, he called Joseph to himself and asked Joseph to make an oath. This is marked by the symbol of placing his hand under Jacob's thigh. So what is it that is his final priority as his life starts to close? 
His request is that Joseph will not allow him to be buried in Egypt, but will carry him out of Egypt to be buried with his fathers. What fuels the urgency of this request? I think Hebrews 11 um, gives us a really profound picture of what's happening here. It tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were profoundly shaped by being heirs of the promise of God. We have watched throughout Genesis as God pursued each of these generations, establishing covenant promises with them that he will make them into a great nation and that he will establish them in the promised land of Canaan. Hebrews 11.13 tells us that all of these people, Jacob included, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised in their own hands, but they were so transformed by their faith in the God who revealed himself to them that they then had eyes to see and welcome those promises from afar. And in light of those promises, even though they hadn't yet held them, they were still so transformed that they now lived as strangers on the earth, not clinging to their homelands or the current esteem or honor they might be experiencing in Egypt. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Now, Jacob knows he will not have any influence in bringing about God's promises to bless his descendants and return them to the land of promise. But he has great confidence that God's faithfulness will far exceed his own finite life. And Jacob's urgency to be buried in the promised land with his forefathers reveals a heart that is longing and yet confident that God's greatest promises would surely come to pass. So as we go into chapter 48, we see another very intimate account of Jacob and Joseph's interactions as Jacob's life draws to a close. Joseph gets notice. His 147-year-old father is likely gravely ill, and so he brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his bedside. Now, at this point, Jacob is so weak that it takes all of his strength just to sit up in bed. So what do you think he will impart to these following generations in what probably is his final encounter with them? We find it in verses 3 through 4. Jacob recounts the most defining moment of his entire life, the moment where God Almighty El Shaddai appeared to him at Luz in the land of Canaan. God appeared to him twice in this place, first when he was fleeing Esau after stealing his blessing, and then again when he came back with his entire household. Jacob now tells Joseph the reality that will define his family for the generations to come, that God Almighty appeared to him there and said, I am going to make you a fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. This is Jacob, the one whose early life was marked by deceit and schemes and wrestling, trying to secure the blessing first from Isaac, but ultimately from God. And here we see him displaying this quiet confidence of a man, now frail and yet strong in his assurance that God will surely fulfill every promised blessing to make him a great nation and to bring his descendants into that land. And in light of this absolute assurance and confidence, Jacob takes this moment 
in verses 5 to 7 to solemnly adopt Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. In effect, granting Joseph a double portion in the inheritance of this promised land. Though these sons were born in Egypt, separate from the rest of the family, to a daughter of an Egyptian priest, Jacob is claiming them fully as his own. He's grafting them in as heirs of the promise of an infinitely higher authority than Pharaoh, of God Almighty himself. Their tribes of descendants will be included in the inheritance of the promised land, just like Jacob's own sons, Reuben and Simeon, as if they were further sons of his own beloved wife, Rachel, who died in childbirth. Then in verses 8 through 11, we see a very tender scene as Joseph, the son whom Jacob grieved for many years, now stands before him and introduces him to his own sons. You can almost just feel the sense of awe and wonder as Israel, which Jacob is now referred to in the rest of the passage. He marvels, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. The scene transitions from a solemn adoption to a joyful reunion, and now a formal blessing. We clearly see that Joseph's expectation is that his firstborn son, Manasseh, will receive a primary blessing from Jacob. But here the narrator zooms in to show us that Israel crossed his arms, clearly defying Joseph's expectations. But before we hear Joseph's objection to this motion, verse 15 says that Israel then blessed Joseph as he spoke over his sons. Now, while earlier Israel had emphasized the growth and inheritance that God has promised them, his blessing here first emphasizes the beauty of God's promised presence with his covenant people. He calls upon God as the one before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, May he bless these boys. Now that Israel's adopted Joseph's sons to share in the physical inheritance, he now calls for the God who has faithfully walked with, protected, provided, shepherded his family. He calls on him to personally bless these boys. He prays that they will be grafted into the truly blessed heritage of his fathers, those who walked by faith who had eyes set on the Lord, whose paths were directed by his presence and promises. I think we all know the tension of how easily it is for us to be consumed with longing for particular circumstantial blessings, or to become consumed with the tokens of God's favor that he already has granted us, so distracted that we start to slip from that wholehearted worship of the Father himself, the giver of all good things. So how might you intentionally pause to thank and praise God for the wonder of his daily provision, his protection, his steadfast love that's poured out to you through Christ? Now, after this blessing, the text kind of abruptly shifts Um, It shows us, again, the disrupted expectations of Joseph. It's almost like he's saying, Okay, Father, I know you're 147 years old. You're having trouble seeing clearly. Here, let me show you the firstborn so that you can bless him properly. 
We might think by now this family line would come to expect the unexpected when it comes to bestowing blessings and inheritance. After all, Joseph himself is currently receiving the double blessing traditionally given to the firstborn, even though he's the eleventh child. Jacob himself was chosen for this blessing over Esau. His father Isaac received the covenant blessing over Abraham's first son, Ishmael. This goes all the way back to Abel's offering being accepted over the firstborn Cain. In keeping with this pattern, Israel holds his ground in verse 19. And speaking in a prophetic sense, which we'll see more of next week, that he tells him that the younger brother will become greater than the older. The pattern is again confirmed. The Lord bestows his blessings in the perfect wisdom of his providence for the greatest display of his glory, not according to man's wisdom. Instead, he's often choosing what is most weak or unexpected in the world to reveal his sovereignty, his power. How do you respond to the surprising, to unmet expectations? Are you prone to take a Joseph approach, trying to uncross Jacob's arms, trying to bring about the outcome that seems best or most blessed in your eyes? Where do you need the Spirit to guide you into the blessing of peace, peace in God's infinite wisdom at work in unexpected ways? to bring about his glory and your good. So in this final intimate conversation between father and son, Israel tells Joseph in verse 21, I am about to die, but God will be with you and he will take you back to the land of your fathers. Here in his final words to Joseph, I think we see a great reality, a core of what it means to be blessed in the Lord. While Joseph will face profound grief at the death of his earthly father, Israel leaves him with the gift of this great assurance. Though my finite days are closing, your God, the one who walks with us, who's been the shepherd all my life, who delivers from harm, he will remain with you. He will fulfill his promises, and he will take you back to the land of promise. We know that God gives and God takes away. He gives and takes away those physical manifestations of his blessing and favor throughout our earthly lives. But though personal comforts or personal relationships might come and go, the reality of God's personal presence with his people is an unchanging, sustaining blessing in every season, extending from today to tomorrow to eternity. And I think that highlights our final principle for this passage. God's abiding presence with his people is the mark of true blessing. We have all been studying Genesis together over the course of a year that has included really near universal strain or loss of many things that we all take for granted or that we consider precious blessings. How has God used this season to show you the steadfast nature of his greatest blessings in Christ? including that we can know and worship and trust and abide in the creator of the universe, not only as Lord, but as our good father. How has he used circumstantial upheaval that you've experienced this year 
to grant you, like the patriarchs here, a deepening longing for the true promised land, that eternal kingdom that he has promised that he's prepared. As we've seen in this passage, the walk of faith does not look to anything that can be changed or lost by things like famine or death to determine our status of blessedness before the Lord. Like Manasseh and Ephraim, if we are in Christ, we too have been adopted. Our status has been forever changed from a slave to sin in the world to now a son or daughter of God. And we too have been given an inheritance not just one of a land or a nation in this present world, but of a heavenly, eternal kingdom where we will always be with the Lord. And like Manasseh and Ephraim and all the patriarchs, we now walk as strangers and sojourners on this earth, longing but with confidence for the better country, a heavenly one. But even in the waiting, God has not left us on our own. He has secured us in Christ. He has promised that he himself is our good shepherd and that he has sent his spirit to dwell with us, to deliver us, and to bless us with every spiritual blessing in Christ for all of our days. So with that, let me pray and close this. Father, thank you that you have provided so great a salvation. Thank you that our adoption lies secure in the righteousness of your Son poured out for us. I pray over each person who's studying your word this week that you would grant them open eyes and soften hearts to see and behold and wonder at the extent of the true blessing that you have poured out in promising yourself to your people. Help us to walk in that this week. Help us to cherish it more than anything else in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 49 and 50. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.